0: Take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 11 as we continue making our way through John's account to those events in Bethany so many years ago. We'll stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll take up in verse 32 uh, just to give us some connection to what's gone before. John 11, 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, "Lord." If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And when he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And when the Jews said, See how... Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said... Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind has also kept this man from dying? Thus far, the word of our God. Let's pray together. Fathers, we continue before you in worship. We come in obedience to your appointment that we should have the preaching of the word of God. Fathers, our desire that through the preaching of the word, Christ would be set before us, that he would be exalted and lifted up and that we would see more of him who loves us, him who gave himself for us, his majesty, and even as the God-man, that we would see something of his humanity uh, sanctified and holy and pure, and that it might instruct us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There have been, in our a number of Uh, We'll say isms, uh, world uh, views, religions, uh, uh, philosophical approaches to life and what it's all about. Uh, Deism, uh, some would say, has died out, although it's very much uh, the uh, father of Unitarianism. It's a religious belief holding that God created the universe and established rationally comprehensible moral and natural laws but does not intervene in human affairs through miracles or supernatural revelation. Deism sees God much like a watchmaker who makes a watch, winds it up, sets it aside, never to return. The God they invented then in deism has no concern for the fate of mankind. Buddhism, a religion of Eastern and Central Asia, grew out of teachings that suffering is inherent in life. We know that, don't we? sufferings all around. And that one can be liberated from suffering, get this, by cultivating wisdom, virtue, and concentration. It won't work. Hinduism, another religious tradition from the Asia and that area, believes that escape from suffering can only be achieved by reincarnation. That all you can hope for is to come back as something else. And it'll be better next time. And then of course what's so prevalent in our day is atheists. They increase in number daily, it seems. They have nothing really to offer to this question of suffering, the reality of suffering that's all around us. Since suffering is a moral category, and the atheist has no satisfactory answer because he says there is no right or wrong. He doesn't have moral categories. Oh, He'll maintain that he does, but ultimately, when you break it down, he does not. Everything and everyone is the result of a total random accident. Creatures compete with each other for limited resources, only the strong survive, that is until something stronger shows up. So if you're hurt, you're harmed, you die, so what? it doesn't matter. Deism, Buddhism, Hinduism, atheism, none of these systems that are so prevalent, uh, these worldviews and religions uh, affect and afflict something over two-thirds of the world's population today and they're completely incapable of answering the question of suffering and even more importantly providing hope and comfort for those who suffer fundamentally they're all pointless they're lifeless they're useless they are of no value underscore the importance of us preaching the gospel seeing that it's sent far and wide that men would be pointed to Christ in whom there's hope even as we shall see this morning. But are these isms of man the final word? No. Praise God. Indeed, no. Praise God. That's not there is, all there is on the topic. God has revealed that he has made us and not we ourselves. We are his workmanship made after his image. He created Them, male and female he created them adam the first of men our father from whom we all descend in the garden when all was abundant and blessed he sinned against god his creator he rebelled there and when he adam when adam sinned and rebelled he reaped the just reward even what was foretold to him by god death Sin entered the world, and with sin, death, and the curse of sin. And my friends, that's why they're suffering. Because Adam sinned, and Adam's descendants have continued to sin, and therefore they're suffering affliction, sorrow, and death in the world because of sin. The Word of God teaches that God did not forsake man when he sinned. No, no. Praise be to God that he entered in at that point when Adam and Eve descend. He came and he announced to them a redeemer, the seed of the woman who would come in the fullness of time to crush the serpent's head even though bruised in the heel. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit have engaged with his creation and his creatures every day throughout all of human history. You get that? These other isms, no engagements, no hope, no involvement, and yet God, the one true and living God who has made all things, he is engaged with his creation and with his creatures every day so that there's not a portion of all of creation that is outside of his dominion and in control. And indeed the scripture teaches us that he governs and rules all his creatures and all their actions so that whatsoever comes to pass on the earth in any given day is as God has decreed it. There are no accidents so for suffering, God is behind it. and God has a purpose in it. Read the book of Job, indeed, underscores that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son engagement into a world of suffering. God sent the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. God has entered our world, the world of suffering and death, to save his people for himself for all of eternity. So yes, the scriptures, the the true and faithful religion, that which is right in all respects, declares unto us that God is near. Yes, he transcends. He encompasses all of creation, even as our elder was reminding us earlier that the vastness of the stars and the heavenly hosts, all are there. God encompasses them. He's greater than all of them. And yet God is near and God is engaged. God has acted and God continues to act in the affairs of men. God is ever-present, a help in time of need. I'm going to consider the text before us with four main headings this morning. Jesus cares about our suffering. Jesus feels our suffering. Jesus loves his suffering people. And finally, Jesus conquered the cause of our suffering. We begin then with, Jesus cares about our suffering. The Holy Spirit has inspired the Apostle John. I just was thinking it's important for us to keep that in mind. John's the Apostle. He's the human author. But even as when we're looking at the book of Genesis before, we're reminded that it was holy men of old that God moved along to write the Scriptures. They were inspired by the Spirit. And John is such a one, one of the Apostles. And the Holy Spirit inspired John to record these remarkable events about Lazarus' disease and his death. And John writes as one with eyewitness accuracy. The account that we're in when Jesus arrives in Bethany, John was there, John came with him, he was at his hand, and he beheld these things, he heard these conversations, and the Holy Spirit has inspired him from those things he saw and heard to write down these things for our instruction. You all know that I'm careful about the word awesome, And I will say that I'm encouraged that I've not seen that word overused uh, since I've exhorted you uh, to be cautious with it because it's a good word. And I'm going to use it right now because when I read this account, I find it awesome that Jesus takes his time moving to the tomb. Jesus takes his time moving to the tomb. He knows why he's come. Jesus doesn't just stroll into town and say to the huddled masses, step aside, stop your crying already, hold on a minute, I'll set everything right, move out of my way, I've come to raise Lazarus from the dead. It's not there. Jesus is being intentional, and he's meeting with Martha and then with Mary, and he's mindful of the crowd that surrounds him. Notice that Jesus doesn't declare to the crowd. He doesn't herald it forth. I'm the resurrection and the life. He says it to Martha. Just to Martha. And perhaps, you know, the disciples or whoever else. There. It's a very private conversation that Jesus reveals this glorious truth that, that the church has reveled in and rested upon ever since that Jesus is the rection, resurrection and the life. He meets with those he loves, quietly. He makes this great announcement to Martha and not to the Jews that have come from Jerusalem. But also notice Jesus is willing to step into Bethany, and in so doing, he's coming under the shadow of death that hung over the whole of Bethany and all those who were there. Uh, You you can't go anywhere in Bethany, but you hear uh, the mourners wailing in their sorrow. The scripture makes it very clear to us that Jesus cared deeply for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This whole dark providence, as we uh, dealt with a couple sermons back, was the Father's best for them. It was for their good. God was at work in it. Because Jesus cared for them, he is teaching them about his father and himself and he's teaching us as well things about him James Jesus half-brother in the opening of his little epistle says count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience that's where Mary and Martha are They've fallen into a trial. Uh, Lazarus, leading up to his death, was in a trial. But God had appointed it. It produced the testing of their faith, produces his patience. James goes on, but let patience have its perfect work, and that you may become perfect. That is the nature of the word there. It's mature and complete, lacking nothing. So we see how Jesus cared. He took time to wait for Martha. He's come to the town The word goes into the town. Martha hears that he's come. She goes out to meet him. He waits for her that he might comfort her and strengthen her faith, even as we saw two weeks ago. Then he sent for Mary, and he waited for her to come to him as well, away from the confusion in the house and in the village. She came, she fell at his feet and worshipped him, and he comforted her, and he strengthened her faith. The encounter and exchange between Jesus and Lazarus' two sisters is a great demonstration of God's love in Christ for sinners, specifically Martha and then Mary. Verse 32 that we read, Mary falls at the feet of her Lord and her God. She comes with a broken heart, something we can relate to. We've had that. We've had a broken hearts. So we will have broken hearts again. It's a reality of life under the sun as Solomon refers to where we dwell. Mary's heart is overwhelmed with grief and sorrow because of her loss. John tells us in verse 33 that Mary was weeping. The, the word in the Greek here is literally wailing. You know, she's not you know, head down silently weeping maybe with a tissue or something. Um, she's wailing in her grief and sorrow. And those who are with him are, are wailing. It is typical of that era and allowed in a, in a, a grievous sorrow being expressed with tears and wailing out loud. When Mary came to him, we're told that as she went, that some of the Jews that were there with her in the house, they also came, assuming that she was going out to the tomb to weep, and there the word again is to wail there. The scene's powerful. It's filled with emotion. Death has robbed this family of one whom they have loved much Death has stolen away a brother. Death has destroyed this family's tranquility. We know something of this, each and every one of us. Satan's devices in the Garden of Eden are at work. We can see them here at work, wreaking havoc on humanity. When Satan rebelled and was cast out, he made it his determined purpose to try to bring upheaval and destruction, chaos, confusion, and heartache to everything that God was doing. Anything that God had set in place to be good, Satan has been assailing. And the family is at the center of that. For the family is foundational. And here's this family hurting because Satan came, as he always comes, only to kill and to steal, and to destroy. Being the son of God and fully man, Jesus showed how much he cared to this family. He, knowing better than all in Bethany why there was sorrow, and why there was suffering, and yet he comforts them. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't come with a critical spirit. He doesn't say, what's wrong with you? Why all this wailing? what's going on here what does jesus say he says where have you laid him he enters into their suffering with them he cares about this family he asks where have you laid him though he comes as the lord and giver of life jesus cares and identifies with his people in their sorrows Listen to the testimony of Scripture from the book of Hebrews as the writer there sets before us our great Redeemer and our high priest, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of Christ, he says, Therefore in all things he was made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of his people. There... Identifying with us, propitiation, he became the sin bearer as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He satisfied God's divine justice, paid the penalty, endured the wrath, removed the guilt and the stain, the propitiation. So great is his care and his identification with his people. And he did so in his humanity. The writer of Hebrews goes on, "...seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens..." talking about the ascension, Christ and his humanity. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, the God-man there. goes on, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. Seeing that this is so, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. You see what he's saying in the positive? Jesus can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He's been here. He was in Bethany. He saw the travail. He saw the anguish. He experienced it, as we're going to see, in his humanity as the God-man. Therefore, we're encouraged. Let me go on. He was sympathized with us in our weakness, but has in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, come boldly. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, find help in a time of need. These words were not penned yet when Mary and Martha were there in the valley of the shadow of death. But they were being made manifest as Christ was there with him. He was acquainted with their griefs. He understood. He cared about them. He entered into their suffering with them. Let's consider some application. People of God, all of you as his children, know that Jesus cares for you and your sufferings knowing this is true, should quicken your step to go to him in sorrow and sufferings. Don't linger in the sorrow. Run to Christ. Flee to him in your time of grief. Yes, clouds, dark clouds of providence often befall us. But behind those clouds are the arms of a living father. Is rather, to draw ready to draw us in into His embrace, to lift us up, and even as the good shepherd to carry us along, holding us against his bosom, Jesus cares about our sufferings, He cares about us in our sufferings, and in so doing, God, incarnate God, come in the flesh, He is demonstrating to us that God our Father, cares. Well, secondly, we want to consider that Jesus feels our suffering. Jesus is moved deeply in this passage. The New King James tells us that he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. Here we want to learn that Jesus cares about our suffering, but that he's not detached from it. He feels it. He's not uninterested. He's engaged completely. Mary was grieving, and Jesus entered into her suffering so that his own heart is in anguish. God incarnate, God in the flesh, cared about Mary and Martha. The psalmist David knows about this. He writes in Psalm 6, The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. And later in Psalm 9, he says, God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. God has always cared about his people and their sorrows. And he feels our needs, particularly in Christ, the God-man. Jesus is deeply moved in this passage. Just how deeply is his spirit troubled what is this groaning that is written of here? One commentator has suggested that this groaning should be uh, translated, he's moved with indignation. But that's not strong enough. The word that is here in the Greek, is, it's a powerful word. And this is the value of that to have preaching from the word where working from the original language is done. Because, you know, we read that and that he was moved, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. That's wonderful. Uh, That comes across in a comforting way. But my friends, there's something much, much, much more going on here. B.B. Warfield, um, dealing in uh, one of his works on the emotions, the passions of Christ, uh, writes that John tells us in point in fact that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus, as he approached the grave of Lazarus, in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. That's really the word that is used here when it says that he was troubled, he groaned, the word he groaned in spirit was troubled. The text goes on to tell us, probably one of the most famous verses, John 35, and it's often remembered only in a trite sense that it's the shortest verse in the Bible, yet it too speaks Volumes. Here's Jesus responding to the human spectacle that's before him the grief, the sorrow, the agony. And he, in his humanity, he weeps. His eyes are wet and tears fall upon his cheeks. But John is telling us something more that there's something that tore at his breast and clamored for utterance that was a just rage. Rage is external, as John's dealing with this here, but John modifies it with a qualification. He raged in his spirit. This is not an external. Those that are looking on and say, man, why is he so angry? But within himself, there is this rage in his spirit. Why? John's saying that Jesus didn't demonstrate it outwardly. But John records for us what was going on as the Holy Spirit has given him understanding to what he could see with human eyes. He's given him a perception spiritually and revealed to him the reality. Jesus is moved with his whole being. This, this same word occurs again in verse 38. Why such an intense emotion? It's not because Mary or her companions were weeping. It's not because he sees unbelief in Mary. Certainly he does not. Maybe in others. That's not why he's uh, raging within. It's not because he's unwilling or they're unwilling to submit to God's providence. No, what we see here is Jesus, the God man. The Father sent him into the world to save sinners. And there was a very reality of it that's before him. What is the consequence of what Adam did in the garden? It's here in this scene with the family weeping. There's there's a brother laid away in the tomb there, four days dead. He's a rotten corpse. This is the result of the rebellion of Satan. And the God-man who has come to crush his head in his humanity sees this reality and he is enraged within at sin and Satan and death and destruction. He is moved so deeply within his being about what is before him. The oppression of men. He feels our suffering. He's god But he's man. In his humanity, he is stirred in a way that none of us could be because we're sinners. But in a holy, sanctified, pure, righteous humanity, he's enraged at the reality of sin. And it's remarkable because he knows he's going to raise up Lazarus. But here we see a picture of the response of our God against the realities of sin and suffering in our world. It's not a shrug. God doesn't say, well, I dealt with it. No, we see Jesus enters into it. John Calvin says, it's the violent tyranny of sin and death. Staying with Calvin here, not quoting, but following what he says. In Mary's grief, Jesus sees the general grief of the whole human race and he burns with rage against the oppression of that it is on men it is death that is the object of his wrath, and behind that the one who has the power of death the one whom he has come to crush under his foot it's a powerful moment i hope you never see this passage in the same manner jesus is raging against our foe. He feels the consequence of sin in a way that we cannot. My friends, here we see the kindness and the care of Jesus. The Creator of all things, the one who created man, uh, who created all life in the space of six days, he created all things and all very good. But Satan came in deceiving Adam and Eve, and, or Eve in the garden, and, and tripping Adam who falls into his trap and joins Satan in his rebellion. This the pinnacle of God's creation, that made in His image, the image bearer of God on the earth, who God has made to rule and to reign and have dominion over the earth. Satan has overthrown him, and here we see. And the God-man, a response to that as Jesus raged within himself. Jesus sees the scene in Bethany as only he could see it. My friends, when we're suffering, you remember that. Jesus sees that scene of your suffering in a way that only he can see it. He sees it better than you see it yourself. He understands your suffering better than you understand it yourself. And he feels... Our suffering. He looks upon these things from the vantage point of being, yes, the second Adam, but also being the Son of God. He's the God-man, the Son of God, the Son of Man. He's entered into our world in the incarnation, coming into the world made under the law, coming under the, the judgment of God in the garden when Adam was condemned and the curse fell upon all creation jesus came in under that and death has touched him since fruits have offended him he is the holy one and he raged within his spirit and this would not have been the first time i was thinking about this as i was wrapping up preparation preparing this sermon it's not the first time jesus seen death we're confident that his father is gone why was his father, Joseph, his earthly father, the adoptive father, why was he gone? For the same reasons. Because of what Satan had done, the same realities. You can imagine when he sees the suffering and the, the afflictions of the children and the, the sick and the diseased and the lepers and all those things that he's healed, that there would have been something of that within his being as he is surrounded day by day with the consequences of Adam's rebellion in the overthrow of Satan's deception. He who is a murderer. That's what Jesus calls him. It's as though he sought to murder all of humanity. God having set man at the pinnacle, Jesus raged. Oh, my beloved friends, when you suffer, know that Jesus, he sees, he cares, and he feels more than any mere man could. And Jesus did something about our condition. I'll have more about that in a moment. Know this when you suffer. Remember Bethany. Remember the response of Christ. He gets it better than we get it ourselves. Elders, an application for us. We can and we should reflect the care of Christ for his people when we come alongside them in their sufferings. In times of their loss times when the heart-wrenching struggle with sin. We know that. We know what it is to struggle with sin. And when we come alongside the saints who are suffering, let us feel that with them. We should feel the heartache of sinful failures, the, the stumbling yet again. There's no room to be aloof. We dare not say, I can't believe you did that. I've said that to parents. Parents, when your children are sinning they've done something that's just awful, don't you dare say, I can't believe you did that. Of course you can believe it. You're a sinner. And look at what you have done. It's a moment to bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to bear. To say, oh, my child, I understand why you did that. I know what's at work within your being. And let me tell you about Jesus who saves sinners. That's gospel-centered parenting. Of course we know why they do but they did that. Likewise with our, our friends, our spouses, with brothers and sisters in Christ, but elders, we need to enter in into our sufferings, uh, the sufferings of God's people. The truth is Jesus saves even the worst sort of sinners. One more application, perhaps more important than the others, though the others important. When we see others suffering, let us not be quick to conclude that we know why they suffer. We're prone to do that. We, we want to come up with a solution. We know the principle of reaping and sowing. It's like, well, if they're, if they're reaping this, they must have sown that. I'm sowing and reaping. I had the order reversed. reverse. But rather than analyze the situation to seek to assign blame, remember who started it all. The devil. Can we not be angry with sin and Satan instead of with one another? If we're suffering, especially when we're suffering at the hands of others, let us remember that while they may be guilty of a great sin, there's a greater foe that is behind them. It's very true that they're victims, not in the way the world uses it, but we become victims of sin because of Adam's failure. If we have rage within us, let us direct it at Satan. Let us learn to be wise, lest we are overtaken in the evil designs of of satan and then we cause others to suffer when they're suffering we understand what it's like let us remember that when jesus was crucified he did not call for 10,000 angels to come down rather he prayed father forgive them for they know what not what they do satan i mean stephen was mindful of that. And when Stephen was being stoned at the hands of wicked men unjustly, only because he testified to God in Christ Jesus, and he too prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let us learn when we're persecuted and men say all manner of evil against us falsely for Christ's sake to pray for them who persecute us and to rejoice exceedingly, as Jesus said, with great joy, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Well, thirdly, let us consider that Jesus loves his suffering people. In verse 34, he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the then the Jews said, See how he loved him. The love of Christ was evidence even to these unbelieving Jews. Jesus raging within at our foe, yet he wept outwardly in his humanity with a clear manifestation of his sorrow. Coming to the tomb, Jesus wept. The word here is not the word of wailing that talks about what Mary and the Jews were doing. It is really, the word means the shedding of tears, weeping, the way we think of it. His eyes were wet and the cheeks flowed down on his, uh, the tears flowed down on his cheeks. His tears clearly demonstrate that he loved Lazarus. The Jews say, see how he loved him. John's record shows that Jesus cares, he feels, and he also loves his people. He loves Martha, he loves Mary, he loves Lazarus. And death did not terminate his love for Lazarus. Because God is the God of the living. Lazarus yet lives. His body is laid aside, but Lazarus is with the Lord. When you love someone, you, you share in their life, in the moments of joy and in sorrow. Love participates in all those moments. This should be great encouragement for those who weep. And when we see them weeping, that we should enter in and weep with them and rejoice with those who rejoice. Too often, we enjoy, when we enjoy good gifts from God, we, we forget to express our gratitude to God. God has blessed us. Let us give him gratitude. It's real easy for us on the flip side when we're suffering to kind of rail against God. God, where are you? God, have you forsaken me? God, why is this happening? You're like Job. All this has befallen him. It's like, where are you, God? I'm a righteous man. Why is this happening? I'm inclined to be angry with God. But God's not the problem. Remember, loss, sorrow, and grief are the result of sin and they're part of the justice of the curse for sin, Adam's sin and our sin. So let us learn to God when our heart aches. While some were observing Jesus' tears and marveling at his love, though there were others that were critical. Isn't that always the case? Those are ready to find fault. Verse 37, And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Isn't that interesting this gathering of Jews that have come out from Jerusalem, it's months later, but they still remember that Jesus opened the, um, the eyes of a man blind from birth. It was a stunning miracle. A remarkable matter. Uh, discussing No doubt that the word of that went out and across the land, word of mouth, from one mouth to another ear, and so forth, because it was so stunning. And, and they're thinking, if he was able to do that, could not he have healed Lazarus? In a sense, we saying, why is he weeping? He could have prevented this. It's a criticism. If the story were to end here with Jesus weeping and him walking away, what would we think? Well, if that was it, end of the chapter, conclusion of the whole matter, Jesus wept, well, we could not. We would not, we could not entrust our souls to his hands. We couldn't. But Jesus was not finished. The matter wasn't over. There was more that he could do. There was more that he would do. Soon, Jesus' tears, demonstrating his love, that his love would be demonstrated, along with his great power as God come in the flesh, the God-man, as he raised Lazarus, and in doing so, demonstrating his deity, that he is the Messiah, the one come from heaven, sent by God, Jehovah's servant, full of the Holy Spirit without measure, the act declares that here is more than a loving teacher. It's interesting. The liberals, they want to strip away the miracles. They love to say, yeah, Jesus is a great teacher. It's wonderful that he cried. And, you know, it's good that he loved. He's a good example. Let's follow that and move on and forget the fact that Jesus went to the tomb and called Lazarus forth and he came out of that tomb. But we look at that. He's more than a loving teacher. He is that. We can say, look and see a mighty Savior one who is able to save to the uttermost. Soon, Jesus will answer these critics with authority. He will stand at the opening of the tomb and cry to Lazarus and him to come forth, and he will walk out still bound in the grave clothes, mighty as this is. And do not be at all, do not think any otherwise. The raising of Lazarus was a mighty miracle. This was the, the greatest miracle that Jesus has done to this point. But there's something more. There's something more that Jesus is going to do. In his three years of ministry, he's done many miracles, and they all pale in comparison to this one, but what Jesus is going to do soon is even greater, for Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to do his greatest work of all. He's going to fulfill what the Father promised in the garden, that he would send a seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, though he be bruised upon the heel. And that brings us to our fourth point, that Jesus the cause of our suffering. In the previous chapter, John recorded those marvelous words that Jesus uttered. He said, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In order to save those whom Jesus loves, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus must die the death that they deserve, the death that we deserve, he must receive the justice of a just and holy God. Sin must be punished. And Jesus received that punishment in himself. Jesus does care. And Jesus does feel. And Jesus does love. And all of that is displayed upon the cross. His rage against our foe was not just empty rage. He went forth and conquered that foe. He went forth... In victory, And even when it seemed as though that he was defeated, he came forth triumphant. There he rages in Bethany. But one of the gospel writers tells us that shortly he will move towards Jerusalem with his faith set like flint, determined to go, determined to go, as the Father sent him to do, to be the sin bearer. To become he who knew no sin, to become sin, that he might deliver sinners out from under the penalty of sin. And yes, Jesus conquered sin and death. He defeated Satan at the cross. I, I think about that moment. The scripture doesn't tell about this, but we're, we're entitled to do some good and necessary inferences. You can imagine that as Jesus is hanging there in anguish, that in the spiritual realm Satan and his forces are clapping and dancing and celebrating or whatever it is that those evil, vile things do, they think, we've won. Just like the parable that Jesus told about the, the man who had a vineyard and he rented it out and he kept sending to collect his rent and they kept beating him up. So he sends his son and they, they kill the son and say, okay, then we can take the vineyard for ourselves. It's a picture of the Jews, but how much more so Satan? But even in his Satan has only got Jesus by the heel and merely bruising it, his head is under the foot of Christ, and he is crushed, and he is defeated. When Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished, it was Sunday morning that Satan realized just exactly what that meant. He couldn't keep him in the grave. It was not possible that he should be held. He came forth victorious. Remember when we were in Genesis 22? That was a while ago in uh, God gave Abraham that son of promise, and then God told him to take Isaac. Yes, Isaac, your only son. Take him up to the mountain that I will show you, and I want you to sacrifice him there to me. And so he took Isaac, he went, and Isaac submitted, he bound him, he laid him on the altar. His hand is raised with a knife to slay him. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad." nor do anything to him, for I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then God provided a ram in a thicket that Abraham sacrificed. That ram pointed to Christ, the Lamb of God, God's only begotten son. When we look at the cross, God declares to us, My precious child, I care for you. I love you. See my son and hear him say, If I am lifted up on the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. God did not withhold his son, his only son. He gave him to save us as sinners. Jesus raging within and tears without show us how great the love of God is. His obedience to go to the cross, lay down his life, demonstrated his willingness to defeat the foe, that he raged against, indeed the foe that was raging against us. But the cross was not the end. That was not the end of the matter. The tomb was not the end either. It was not possible for that tomb to hold him. So he came forth on the first day of the week, which is why we gather to worship as we do today. Jesus came forth triumphant victorious over sin, death, the grave, Satan, and all that was against us. So in this world we, we still suffer and endure trials according to God's appointments. But that's not does not change what Jesus has accomplished. In him we have salvation, we have adoption. We have sanctification. All things are brought to us by Christ. When we consider Satan, he's defeated. Sin, it is powerless. Wrath, the wrath of God, it is spent. The grave, it is thrown open. Death, the sting is removed. Hell, it is closed to all those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God cares for sins. For his glory, (coughs) he sent his son into the world to save sinners. And as the God-man, he feels the anguish of our sin. He knows our sufferings. He too has suffered. And his love compelled him to go to the cross to save us. My dear friends, what will you do with such a great Savior? What is your response to this one? How he feels, how he cares, how he loves, who invites you to come and taste and see that he is good. Will you come? Have you come? Behold Jesus afresh. He loves you, feels what you feel, and he cares for you. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we do marvel. At this account, we marvel that your son was willing to come to earth, to come in under the law, to come under and live on earth, cursed, that he cursed, and all the results of the curse that were there, and yet he dwelt among us. He walked amongst men for those 33 years. But more importantly, he then went to the, to the cross and laid down his life for his people. Father, what a picture! of the loving care and kindness of our God and Savior. That his rage against Satan was not just an emotion, but indeed it led to action. And he who alone was suited to conquer did and secured for us life evermore. Lord, we bless you and praise you for this new life we have in Christ. Lord, teach us to look to him and depend upon him when we suffer according to your appointment, Lord, that we would not chafe under it, but that we would flee to the one who cares for us and find the comfort of his wings spread over us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.